CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Many of us think fur coats are immoral, yet are happy to wear leather shoes. We may fiercely protect tigers and pandas from extinction, while thousands of vital insect species receive less attention and concern. Should we end this hypocrisy by treating all animal species equally, however difficult this might be? Should biodiversity be an end in itself and the basis for intervention? Philosopher Ray Tallis, writer, poet and broadcaster Melanie Challenger, farmer and politician Jamie Blackett and professor of sociology at Kingston University, Kate Peggs, debate the hypocrisy of the way we treat animals. This debate was produced in association with The Future Normal. The Future Normal is a place to rediscover how amazing our relationship with animals can be and how to create that change in our everyday lives. Find out more by visiting futurenormal.org.uk. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for thousands more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Welcome to this morning's debate, Humans and Other Animals. I'm your host, Miriam Francois. Many think fur coats immoral and yet are happy to wear leather shoes. We fiercely protect tigers and pandas from extinction while thousands of vital insect species get notably less attention and concern. Many claim to be concerned about the welfare of animals, but is it the cute and the charismatic that come first? The others are largely an afterthought. Should we end this hypocrisy by treating animal species equally, however difficult this might be? Should biodiversity be an end in itself and the basis for intervention? Or are we right to make distinctions based on the value we attach to the species along with the accident of human desire, fashion and aesthetic? Well, to discuss this and much more, I'm joined by a wonderful panel. Um, kicking off this morning will be Melanie Challenger, who is a writer, poet and podcaster who researches the relationship between humans and the natural world. Next up, we have Raymond Tallis. Uh, Ray is a philosopher, poet, neuroscientist, and physician whose philosophical writing has been informed by his medical expertise. Next, we have Jamie Blackett. Jamie is a farmer, author, politician, and journalist who writes about rural life and politics for papers like The Telegraph and The Spectator. And last but certainly not least, we have Kay Peggs. Kay is a professor of sociology at Kingston University and a fellow of the Oxford Centre for Animal Ethics, who argues for non-human animals being accepted into the scope of sociological studies. Should we treat humans and all animals equally? If we kick off with Kay. Um, well, there's a tension in the question because humans are animals. So I think we should treat all animals equally and that includes humans and other animals. And the question does recognize that there are differences among non-human animals and that is really important because it's a huge number of um, different species. And if we don't treat all animals equally, then we're being speciesist, which means that we're 
looking at the interests of one species and they're overriding the interests of the greater interests of other species. And those species are often devalued in one way or another. So how do we decide on how to treat others? Well, one way to do it is to think about this morally and which means that we need to um, think about interests that are broader than our own, broader than ours individually. And we can draw on John Rawls's idea of the theory of justice here and the, the veil of increments. What would we want the world to be like if we didn't know who we were? So we're born into the world, we're individuals, but we don't know who we are. Am I a worm? Am I an ant? Am I a human? So how do I want the world, world to be? And this means I move away from the bias of thinking about myself and thinking about myself as human. And so in order to think about treating all animals equally, human and non-human animals, we need to put ourselves in the place of other animals and think about how we treat them. So yes, we should treat all animals equally. Thank you. Uh, Jamie, should we treat humans and all animals equally? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, as a farmer, this is very real for me. It's not just a dry academic question. Uh, we have something like 800 cattle here, and I'm also responsible for the biodiversity on this farm. I think if you took that question to its logical conclusion, uh, you would have to stop farming livestock uh, animals, and that would have very profound uh, impact on our ecosystem. I'm also an arable farmer, and uh, the, <clears throat> the arable part of my farm is effectively a desert for wildlife. Uh, we're growing plant-based foods, sounds wonderful, but uh, if you look at that part of the farm compared to the, the other part of the farm where we've got cattle grazing, it's covered in birds and uh, small mammals. And uh, I think, you know, you, we as humans have to accept that we are the, the top of the, the food chain. And if we, if we sort of bunk out of that, then that has very profound uh, effects on our ecosystem. And the other thing, as far as the biodiversity is concerned, uh, if we treated all animals as equal, then we would uh, abrogate our responsibility as the only apex predator left in our ecosystem. I believe that all animals should be treated with respect and humanity, uh, but I, I don't believe that all animals should be viewed as equal or certainly that humans should be viewed as equal to all animals. Thank you so much. Raymond Tallis, should we treat humans and all animals equally? Um, I'm knocking on a bit now and yet I still don't know what kind of creature I am. I'm pretty sure I'm not a soul or an angel but I don't think I'm a beast or rather there's a big huge gap between me and even my nearest primate kin, chimpanzees or whatever. So it's important to think about what's in the gap and I know we're going to talk about that in due course but it would include a thousand cognitive handshakes that make the fabric of shared lives and form the basis for our normative sense, our complex sense of ought, expressed in the notion of explicit rights and duties, duties that extend beyond our immediate circle. And it's this gap that makes it difficult to think of animals as fellow citizens of the planet and makes it difficult to talk about their rights any more than we would talk about their duties. For example, the duty of predators not to prey on their prey. More generally, our differences raise questions about how 
the treatment of animals should differ from the treatment of other people. Now, the foundation of morality is we shouldn't treat our fellow humans purely instrumentally, as means for an end, but as ends in themselves. But this couldn't guide us in our treatment of animals. So we have to think of criteria we apply to judging the uses of animals as dinner, as a material for handbags, as beasts of burden, and so on and so forth. But beyond this is also the wider issue of our treatment of nature. And for example, the environmental consequences of farming, such as the greenhouse gases that come from the rear end of cows. And there is the question of whether the lives of animals subordinated to human use, as in farming, farming are worse than those they have in the wild. And that is not very clear. So I hope I persuaded you that the question is even more difficult uh, than it might have seemed at first sight. Uh, Melanie Challenger, should we treat humans and all animals equally? In what ways are we going to treat them equally is what, what we need to answer first. And there's a great um, story uh, in, in Taoism, um, which is of the Marquis of Lu. Now, a seabird arrives at the court and it's very, very unwell. And the Marquis says, well, give it entertainment, give it wine, give it meat. And he, and he will recover. So this goes on for three days. They treat the seabird as they think that we would, how, how we would like to be treated. And of course the seabird dies because what the seabird needed was the things that it requires itself for its own flourishing. So I think what we need to answer here is not to see other, um, to see animals, all other animals, humans included, in their own, within their own needs and requirements and so what where the equality comes from firstly could be from a position of how we're framing them so are we looking we can look on all other all beings as moral subjects for instance but we don't have to see all other animals as uh, moral agents we can see all other animals as owed their own respect at a baseline but we don't have the same duties that follow from that. The duties will be in response to the needs of those animals themselves. And so, no, if we're going to treat other animals the same equally, we have to ask the question first, in, in what way would, would they be requiring us to treat them in the same way as us? And what we will find is if we follow from that, we'll have lots of different ways in which we can interact with lots of different species that are respectful of the differences that there are across all of the taxa. Melanie Chandra, thank you for that. So now we're gonna open up to our first theme of the debate, which is how are humans different from animals? I know some of you have touched on this already, but so there are millions of species of animals of all shapes and sizes, yet we believe that one of these species, one of the more hairless great apes, is categorically different from all others, or at least some of us here do. And for this, I'd like to kick off with uh, Raymond Tallis, who I think has already started us off on this, but we'd like to hear a bit more from you on that one. The difference goes very deep. It goes into the nature of consciousness. Human consciousness, is um, characterized, uh, amongst other things, by what philosophers would call joined intentionality. The ability to share our experiences with others, which begins very early in life. You know, children who haven't got speech yet are pointing things out to their parents and so on. But out of that come a whole variety of other aspects of human consciousness. Hence time, uh, our sense that X is the case, our ability to make things explicit, our institutions, 
our appeal to explicit rules, etc., etc., our sense of nationhood, and so on. All of these things are derivatives of a fundamental difference between human consciousness and the consciousness of even uh, the um, higher primates. Don't take my word from it. I'm not a primatologist, but some of the uh, most um, uh, eminent primatologists, such as Thomas Sudendorf and so on, have spelled out this gap between us and apes, um, and even the, the great apes, uh, is pretty clear cut. And it really just requires one to acknowledge what is in front of one's nose in order to uh, see that. I sympathise with that and I certainly think moral agency and abstraction, so our ability to live in the conceptual world, is a sign of the kind of cognitive niche that human beings have adapted for. So we, you know, primates, mammals broadly actually, mammals broadly show, uh, because they're so, you know, mostly social beings um, have kind of similar nervous systems and, and a lot of kind of similar um, requirements of dealing with the external world and the internal world are quite similar. Um, you see a lot of pre a premium on cognition and, and certain cognitive skills across mammals broadly. You see that very strongly in primates. Um, and I see, I, I, I know uh, Thomas Sudendorf's work and Michael Tomasello is, is another um, who would push for a kind of a, very much an exceptionalist response to comparative cognitive work. But there are others like Franz de Waal, for instance, who's also a very eminent um, uh, primatologist who doesn't push for such a hard line on, on the differences that he is seeing either in the neurochemical physiological structures or in fact behaviorally. What, what I think we're often talking about with the gap is cultural, because if you start looking back to where language likely emerged, for instance, now some argue for a sort of very, some is a language definition thing, but some would argue for kind of 70,000 years ago, but many also argue for more like 500,000 years ago, so pre-speciation to Homo sapiens. Now, even if we went, you know, 10,000 years ago, we're not going to see the huge gap that we're seeing now where we're sending sports cars out into space. So a lot of the gap happens over time because we accumulate external information through our cultures and our technologies. How we respond to that morally becomes very problematic because, because of that cultural gap that is nothing to do with you know, what you feel or experience and how we ought to respond to that. It becomes very difficult to say that because you can talk on a computer, you somehow have a greater value because that would also argue that our ancestors who didn't have computers would somehow have less value intrinsically and less duties owed to them than we might have now. So I just think it's a messier picture than that. That I guess would be my response. Kay, can I bring you in here? Language and cognition are what distinguish us um, as humans. There are real problems with the way, with the framing of the argument because all animals are different. All species are different. So just to say humans are different from all other animals is quite um, problematic because we could say the same about many different animals. They're all different to each other. But we don't really know that much about other animals. We communicate, we seem to spend a lot of our time as humans talking about how superior we are and what makes us superior. And we have this and we, we recognise that in ourselves because we recognise who we are. And to me, it's largely socially constructed. So what we do is we construct this difference as being one of superiority. 
And so we talk about ourselves as being superior. And much of this, I mean, much of the debate is, is hundreds of years old. It goes back to Descartes, who thought that we thought as well as had physical bodies and other animals didn't um, think they would just had physical bodies. And we seem to be still developing that same argument. And to me, we need to listen much more to those scientists, if, if we're going to listen to science in this, and that's the way the debate is being framed, because we might want to think about it philosophically and ethically, as well as in this biologically scientific way that we're talking about. But listen to scientists like Mark Beekoff, who notices many resonances between the ways in which we behave, the ways in which we communicate, and emotions in other animals. And we know as well, with the problems of knowing other minds, how difficult it is to know the minds of other humans, let alone knowing the minds of other species. So to make decisions about how they think and how they communicate, and indeed whether they have cells or whether they have cultures in, in terms of how they interact with each other, is very difficult for us to determine. But nevertheless, we still seem to be, want to determine that in a way that makes us seem to be hierarchically superior. So we're the, we see ourselves as the yardstick. And I think that's a real problem. We need to think outside of that. Jamie, do you wanna come in on that? How can we know that intelligent animals don't experience a sense of self even in a diminished capacity or in a different capacity as Kay has pointed out? The fact that we, we are here, um, five of us talking over Zoom, uh, powered by electricity, which is probably being uh, created by uh, power stations pumping uh, greenhouse gases out into the atmosphere and that sort of thing is, is proof that of, of two things really. One is that, that we've evolved into um, a massive supremacy, superiority and power over all other animals, which is not the same as, as moral superiority, but it, it is a fact of life that we now influence the environment and therefore the environment in, in which all other animals uh, live um, to a degree that was just simply inconceivable um, just a few millennia ago. Uh, and also the fact that we're, we're agonizing over these um, moral distinctions is another important distinction between us and and animals. Um, we are capable of reason in a way that most other animals are not. Um, we question uh, whether we should eat smaller animals. Uh, most other animals um, don't, um, <laughs> don't even think about it. They'll, they'll just, if they see um, a prey animal, they will eat it without thinking about it. Um, so I think it's, uh, and this sort of comes back to the, um, the enlightenment really, and the, the, the ideas of, of, uh, reason and logic and empiricism. Um, we've learned through experience, uh, that we can influence the, the animal world. I mean, we, uh, as farmers and conservationists, we focused on three things, uh, habitat, food source and protection uh, which, which normally means uh, control of of other predators that is a sort of part of the enlightenment thinking and my fear is that the 
animal rights movement or certainly the more extreme ends of it uh, i see as part of the the counter enlightenment because it's going back to superstition the sort of superstition that we had before the enlightenment uh so uh, and that leads us nicely into the other question you asked about about sentience i think wasn't it and, and how animals feel and and i I mean, we're in we're in really dangerous territory here. I mean, the government is is I believe in the Queen's speech there was something about animal sentience, and they're going to pass legislation that acknowledges animal sentience. And of course, I agree that all all animals are sentient; that they are capable of feeling pain, and and certainly they feel emotion. I mean, as a, as a cattle farmer, <clears throat> I've learnt to look at uh, the way that cows uh, ears are pointing i mean it's very you you can instantly tell when something was wrong when their ears go down and in fact it's it's really extraordinary the way um if a calf has pneumonia you can you can all you could almost tell what sort of pneumonia it is from the angle of its ears uh, I mean, I think they've, they've, they've now sort of starting to prove that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we, we uh, going, going back to my original thoughts that, you know, we're not equal to animals, but that we need to treat animals with, with respect. I mean, we need to, to learn more about the way that they feel uh, pain and feel emotions and uh, design, as farmers, design our systems accordingly and 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 also um deal with the as i said the biodiversity um, Melly, i know you wanted to jump in before we move on to theme two please go ahead let's just be clear about a few things the first thing is that the enlightenment ideas came out of a a monotheistic largely christian perspective the men and they were largely men who were putting forward those ideas at the time john mark and and, and so forth that sort of generation were um, very religious, very bound within religious, a religious framing, which was largely an exceptionalist framing. Now that is not inevitable around the world. There are many other worldviews that situate themselves with regard to other species in different ways. Um, so indigenous worldviews that are more animistic, for instance, in which they sacralize the species that they hunt and eat, is a very different kind of relationship, responding to natural knowledge in a very different kind of way to what you will get in, in a kind of intensive farming modern society that has been built on monotheistic views. So that would be one thing to say straight away, that it's not straightforward that we can consider different worldviews um, and there are different ways to frame the relationship that we might have with other species. That's the first thing. The second thing is the idea that we are an apex predator and that this is somehow bringing value into the world. Actually, our predatory nature is precisely what complicates our moral nature. Um, our, it, is, it isn't inevitable our morality emerges from the fact that we are not a herbivore. We happen to be a predator and it does complicate our moral senses, often which are physical and their experience. They're not just rational. They're not just logical. We are responsive to drooping ears, for instance. You know, that affects us and it affects the moral actions that follow from that. Um, but our predation, our, our role as a predator, if we were to say that that is what gives value, 
bear in mind that we have about 4% of the, of the mammal biomass mass now that is, is wild. On top of that, we have the most populous bird in the world is the chicken. On top of that, we have mammal sizes, and this has been happening since pre-homo sapiens. Mammal sizes are now smaller uh, than they've ever been since the dinosaurs were on Earth, and that is through human action. So it's very difficult to start making value judgments. I think we can make statements about things, but when you start allowing value to creep in, you have to be very careful uh, what, what you're saying, because it's, it's often a lot more complicated. Than there is a definite value from us from our interventions in controlling meso predators who are predating on other animals and we we can actually prevent extinctions of birds like the lapwing and the curlew and other and small small mammals that are in danger of extinction by by controlling those meso predators because we we by our actions of taking out the yeah you know eagle owls the wolves the bears that sort of thing we've we've allowed a completely fake environment in this country to develop uh, and we have a responsibility i think to uh, to a certain extent put that right i mean you know we could introduce wolves and bears reintroduce wolves and bears and lynxes and things but i mean in most parts of the country that's not terribly practical it, it might be okay in parts of the highlands of scotland and it, so if we if we don't intervene and, and act as a predator to control, for example, foxes. And I would argue also probably we should be controlling badgers, which are really now too numerous. I know that's very contentious, but we should be. I think, sorry. Um, then, then, we, then, you know, there is a, that there's a direct causality there. We, we, will, we will lose certain species. Let's go move on to scene two, if you don't mind, which is about um, hypocrisy about the way that we treat animals and I think some of these scenes may well come up in in this particular part of the conversation so we couldn't bear to watch someone beat a dog yet we're happily slaughter and consume more intelligent animals like pigs we worry about the loss of panda habitats on the other side of the world but we don't mind wearing the skin of our fellow creatures so th the second theme here today is are we hypocritical about the way that we treat animals and I would love to bring in Kay at this point because I think suspect you may have a strong view on this one. I think that the previous discussion shows the hypocrisy. We want to stop some animals being made extinct by hunting others. So there's this idea that we are somehow in control of the environment and that our control is somehow positive. Whereas we've had a very negative effect, if I think of humans, on the environment and the discussion around the Anthropocene is, it shows the sorts of negative effects that we've had. But certainly in terms of hypocrisy, we are, we are hypocritical. We want to save some and kill others. We want to save those who we think are more beautiful or more like us in, in, um, in favour of those who we think aren't. But also, if we just take the dog as an example, we have the dog as an animal that we want to live with, a companion who lives with us. But so dogs also appear in um, experiments. They're used in experiments in laboratories. So then the dog moves from being a companion to be an experimental subject. So we're hypocrit hypocritical about animals within one species, let alone thinking about all animals, including humans, because we also have inequalities among humans, so we treat humans 
hypocritically as well as other animals. We are very hypocritical in how we think about and treat other animals. That's um, a strong view. <laughs> yes, Raymond, please come in. I'd uh, love to hear your thoughts. Oh, thank you. I mean, first of all, just to park up this business of difference, it's a different kind of difference between humans and all the other animals and other animals and each other. The difference is vast. The Anthropocene has already been mentioned by Kay. But when it comes to hypocrisy, we are incommensurate rather than superior to other, other animals. Of course, the judgment that we superior is really very suspect because it implies we can mark our own homework and somehow put ourselves top of the class. That's nonsense. We are differently different. And uh, that profundity of that difference is evidenced in the enormity of the Anthropocene. But the fact remains is uh, that we do value our survival and that of our loved ones greater than the survival of most other animals. I th again, I, I think it's possible for there to be, you know, even, even more sort of nuance within it. And often it comes down to, um, uh, to making sure that we, we understand kind of the instrumental value thing that Raymond mentioned earlier. So, um, you know, to, to go back to the kind of um, predator hypocrisy, and Kay touched on this, you know, I mean, I actually live in, in a rural area and I live in and have done for many, many years. So I'm totally embedded in a rural area and I greatly sympathise with what Jamie's saying. And I have many colleagues and, and friends and, and people that I know in the community. M most people around me are farmers or they're running land for there's grass shooting, pheasant shooting in the area that I am. Um, so I, I hear all of these sorts of things all the time. You know, there are several things that we just don't, you know, don't know that I would say to add a bit of nuance here. We don't, for instance, know what a healthy curly population looks like. Nobody knows that. My husband's a seabird ecologist. I can tell you for now that no, no one quite knows what that is. We don't have that data. So we're making best guesses and we're making it in, within this idea that our countryside should have this number of creatures or these creatures should be here and other creatures shouldn't. So, you know, and I hear these sorts of things all the time. The reality is we don't quite know. We're making best guesses. We're picking around from timescales and baselines that we think will work for us. But mostly we're able to live with that huge amount of flexibility and the question of whether, you know, why a curly would matter and a pheasant wouldn't, for instance, or why, you know, th these sorts of things are deeply problematic, often very under-examined and often very rarely publicly debated or deliberated in any reasonable way. Um, and they are complicated and they are nuanced. Um, but they are possible in our world because basically other animals have no intrinsic value. We do treat them as ends. And I think it is possible to rethink that and to unpick that without falling into the situation. I would like to hear Raymond respond, respond to that actually because I would be interested. You know, you can have interspecies and sort of intraspecies obligations, going back to that kind of Marcus of Flew idea. Other animals have different requirements. You can both allow them to have intrinsic value and not assume that human beings always have kind of instrumental rights over other species. But you don't have to necessarily um, say that in all situations, therefore, we treat a mosquito in the same way that we would a baby because that wouldn't be how we would flourish. Our flourishing is very different. The kind of thing, you know, that would be really um, uh, morally and psychologically disastrous for human beings. So we have to respond to our, our 
you know, the, the duties and, and needs that we have to flourish for us, but we can't, that doesn't close off being responsive and complicating the kind of moral duties we might owe to other species if we pay attention to their distinct and different needs as organisms. Um, I will bring Raymond back in on that, but Jamie, I'm very keen to hear your thoughts on this and whether you think there are hypocrisies in British wildlife policy more broadly. Well, I think certainly. I mean, just, well, just picking up on a couple of those points, Kay asked um, about control <clears throat> and, you know, why should we assume we are, we're in control? Well, well, we are in control. I mean, whether we like it or not, as a farmer, decisions I make or whether I plough up a field or whether I plant trees or look after the hedges or whatever. I mean, it, it's even cleaning out a ditch has an impact on the, on the newt population. I mean, we, we, we are in control. And Melanie was saying, how do we know what a healthy po uh, curlew population looks, what it looks like? Well, we'll know when there are no curlews that that's not healthy. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're on the brink of extinction with, with quite a lot of birds in particular in this country and, and, and other small mammals like the red squirrel, for example. Um, and so it, it, the hypocrisy, I mean, we, yeah, I mean, there's okay. You can argue there's this big hypocrisy that that we, um, you know, we say that we 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 love animals and we treat animals with respect, and then we hunt them or we farm them and eat them or whatever. And, and I, we can agonise about that. But I, I mean, I guess I guess the fact that, you know there's a broader truth that the reason that we do is that we've always done it, and we've we as humans have evolved to do that, um, and that's part of being human in my mind uh, but in, in terms of policy you talked about the policy yeah and there are definite I can, I can highlight a number of hypocrisies I mean talking about squirrels for example I mean we we know there's plenty of empirical evidence that uh, if you have gray squirrels coexisting with red squirrels then the red squirrels get wiped out by the, the squirrel pox uh, carried by the gray squirrels and and also you know they get out competed and and the gray squirrel is not is an alien species um introduced by the duke of bedford in 1858 or whenever it was um <clears throat> and uh you know i i have no difficulty in uh if i see a gray squirrel here because uh, we also have a healthy population of red squirrels one of the last places that does, uh, then I have no hesitation in, in trapping that, that gray squirrel and, and killing it. I, I, to me, that is a, a, a moral judgment that, that it, I, I'm fine with. But there are people who disagree with that. And there, there, there is a, a movement in this country led by people like Chris Packham to have the gray squirrel protected, knowing full well the, uh, the impact that it has on the on the endangered red squirrel species. And that to me is a hypocrisy. I think there's a, a hypocrisy in the people who say that uh, we should not do, do something about the TB in badgers because TB affects badgers dreadfully. They suffer from it uh, and die. And I think they, that, you know, that is something that it needs to be dealt with irrespective of the, the impact on, uh, on the cattle herd in this country and I, and I, and I fully accept that the, the cattle are the, the main culprits the people should not be moving cattle around the country and spreading the disease I'm, I'm very clear on that but I also you know believe that there is a hypocrisy in saying that you should not 
cull badgers, knowing that uh, by not doing so, the, there's this terrible disease in, in the badger population that's just going to carry on proliferating. Uh, and there's a, a massive uh, hypocrisy, I think, in, in the arguments uh, in the, 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 the vegan movement um, promotes. Uh, you know, they, they, they talk about the, the cruelty to, uh, to animals, the, the eating, um, eating them, using the, the leather and, and actually the biodiesel from the tallow, which is something that never gets mentioned. Um, but I can say as a, as a mixed farmer that, that, and this has been proved in numerous studies, that many, more, many, many more sentient creatures die or are deprived of life. Uh, through arable farming, through through cropping, through you know producing plant-based food. So there's a there's a massive hypocrisy here because we you know we anything we eat, um, some creature has has died or been deprived of its environment in order to to create that food. So you know that there's another example of our hypocrisy, I think, but there are many. Thank you to all of you. I, I know that um, we wanted to, uh, Raymond, you might have wanted to come back on this one. I'm wondering if you can bring that in maybe to your answer on the third question, because I do want to touch on this one, which is the, the future of the movement. You know, um, the fact that animal rights in the West has been growing, is this going to continue? Where is it going to end? What's the direction of travel uh, for this particular movement? It, it just seems to me that James is, is right. There is a hypocrisy. There is a blindness to the consequences of any decision we make in our relationship to the animal world. And the consequences will always include some negative effects on the animal world. And those negative effects are invisible when we don't particularly like or embrace the animals in question, and they are visible if we uh, find them cute and, and so on and so forth. I think the important thing is to appreciate that our primary concern as human beings is probably for other human beings. And I don't feel ashamed of valuing other people's children above the children of other animals. I just feel that's something that I cannot. So if I had the choice, uh, between killing a child or allowing a child to be killed and killing a predator, I would not hesitate to kill the predator. And I think that's probably true of everybody around this virtual table. Like any direction we go has to always acknowledge the kind of things that James has highlighted, which that there's any positive approach towards the welfare of animals will always bring negative consequences, even when it includes when it includes excluding uh, using animals, uh, uh, using anim animals directly. Uh, I think the fact remains is, for good or worse, we are many billions of people on the planet. We will have a huge impact on other species, and that impact will be largely to our advantage rather than the advantage of the other species. Thank you, Raymond. Um, can I bring you Kay in? You know, do you realistically believe that we can live in a world without cruelty to animals? Is that where you see the movement going? I think that it would be lovely if we could live in that world, but I don't know how possible it is, but we have agency. Other animals have agency as well, but we have agency. And the question in a way, it doesn't really assume this, but it could be assumed in this way as if we don't have agency ourselves. And thinking about what Jamie said earlier about vegans, I'm a vegan. And um, I think the one thing, one of the things we can say about vegans and, and the same with you, Jamie, as a, as a farmer, is that we think about our relationships with other animals and with the environment and many humans don't think about those 
issues. So I think there's a similarity between all of us in that we're thinking about it. And whether or not you're someone who promotes the, the rights of other animals or the well-being of other animals, we're all thinking about that. And I think that's really important. I think that it, it's never possible to be a complete vegan because we all know that um, other animals die in the process of giving us food. But it, it's the industrial farming and the farming of animals for killing that is the issue and the problem and also for using their milk and so on. Could we all be aiming to be vegan? We, to me, it would be, <laughs> that would be a very, that would be a preferable way to be. But being vegan is not just about food. It's not wearing other parts of animals, you know, like the, the skins that Jamie referred to with leather and so on. I think, not to criticise Raymond, but I think that often in this debate, there's this emotive argument about whether or not you would save a child or another animal. And I, I really think that we should, for me, we should be moving beyond those sorts of emotional decisions and thinking about our place as um, beings in a world of many beings and how we should treat those beings. And just thinking about being vegan, as you just said, Melody, is one way of moving towards thinking about our relationship with others. Thank you, Kate. Um, can I bring you in, Jamie? Because I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on the future of the movement and whether we should all go vegan. Well, I certainly don't believe we should all go vegan. I mean, I, <clears throat> I would see the effects uh, here more perhaps than, than all of you would because uh, you know we, we could we could turn the whole farm over to cropping over to, to, to growing potatoes and, and vegetables other vegetables and, and um, cereals and, and um, to produce uh, plant so-called plant-based food uh, for everybody but uh, it would have a, a, a terribly bad impact on our soil health which relies on animal manures. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, it, otherwise it all has to come out of a bag from the petrochemical industry and that, you know, that has a terrible uh, effects on soil health. Uh, and, and, and as I said, it would have a, a really bad effect on biodiversity. Um, I mean, I think the, the animal uh, rights movement has, has and it, it might sound strange coming from me, but I mean, it ha has done a lot of good. I mean, you know, that, you know, there are in this country, there are no longer, um, you know, pigs in crates and, and, and cattle kept in, in awful dark old bias that I remember from my youth. My fear is that it's, that there are malign forces uh, uh, on both sides of, of actually of the spectrum uh, on the, on the left, but also perhaps more insidiously, I think corporate capitalism has a lot to answer for. Uh, the big global conglomerates, Kellogg, Cargill, all these huge multinational firms who are answerable to nobody, you know, they, no government is big enough to take, to take them on. And they've worked out that, you know, there's a far bigger margin from selling consumers a sort of plant-based gloop sugars and vegetable oils and things dressed up to be uh, meat or milk or whatever uh, than there is from you know selling a straight product so they're 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 pushing it from one end and and you've got this sort of anti-capitalist movement at the other end and i and i don't think the media are in this country at the moment are entirely 
balanced. So I, I think the, the short answer to your question is that the animal rights movement will run and run because it's got, it's got all the power and the arguments at the moment. Thank you so much, uh, Jamie. Melanie, do you want to give us your thoughts on the future of the movement? Yeah, very quickly, I would say we've, we've dressed up a lot of imperfection here, uh, presented a lot of imperfection. Imperfection isn't an argument for the status quo, I should clarify. So yes, it is true that if we were to, to re, you know, we have to rethink certain things. There are certain moral dilemmas that face us. We have the Anthropocene, we have a biodiversity crisis. You know, we've got, we are, as Jamie has pointed out, a huge influence. And as Kay has pointed out, and Raymond, we also have moral agency and therefore we need to respond to that. That is fundamental to what we are. Um, but values do shift and we have new evidence. We have new evidence of moral significance. So starting from Darwin, but taking us right through to very recent work in what we understand about sentience, what we understand about um, feelings, pain, suffering. You know, we have new evidence that we have to respond to and new conditions morally that we have to respond to. We can't duck the sorts of dilemmas that are, that are facing us in the future. And I would say that, you know, it's, I, I worked on whaling. So when I was younger on the history of whaling. Now, we that was an oil industry it was a boom and bust oil industry it also sat in a time of very different values in terms of how we thought about other animals and purely instrumental now that system led to um and it was a deep tradition for people really important tradition that that you know for people's lives for people's livelihoods great major source of income across europe and north america but the realities are that we drove those animals because we had gave them absolutely no value on their own terms, purely instrumentalized them, industrial forces were applied to that, and you ended up with the near extinction of whales in the Southern Ocean and the bowhead whale and, and, and the right whales um, in, in the northern latitudes. So we had to have a moratorium in because frankly people would have made more from the capital on the on killing all of the whales than they would have done in in doing it in a more sustainable way but what we found is that over the years since value values have shifted we look at whales in a very different way now and the economies have shifted too so you actually make more money now from from whale watching than we did in the original industry that we had Values can shift and economies can shift, but it takes time and it's often, you know, quite messy and you need a fair space for deliberation and thought. Thank you so much. I want to thank all of our panel for your contributions. We could have kept going a lot longer, but unfortunately our time is up. Thank, thank you. you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe. And visit iai.tv for thousands more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.